Hello, and welcome to Lodestar's Lending Leaders. I'm Jim Paolino, founder and CEO of Lodestar Software Solutions. On this podcast, I'm going to be talking to leaders in the mortgage and real estate industries. Our goal is to talk about current events, interesting things from their end of the industry, and anything else that we feel is fascinating. Hello, welcome to Lodestar's Lending Leaders. Today, we have a very special guest, industry powerhouse, Regina Lowry. Uh, Regina is CEO of Ditrix. She was the first woman to be chair of the Mortgage Bankers Association, um, also a CMB certified mortgage professional, and a host of other things that I'm excited to cover on as, on this podcast. Uh, Regina, thanks so much for coming on. Uh, really excited to have you. I know there's a lot of things uh, that we want to cover uh, specific to the industry here, uh, but I guess for the the benefit of our inter- listeners. Uh, to start, um, we'd love to hear about kind of how you got into the mortgage industry, um, your journey through that, and especially now what brought you to Ditrix um, to address a lot of those specific problems. Well, thank you, Jim, for the invitation. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm honored to be here today. Um, how did I, well, back in the 80s, uh, I got involved in the mortgage industry towards the tail end of the SNL crisis, which, mm-hmm. you know, those that have been in the industry for a long time know, and I did mm-hmm. start with a savings and loan here in Pennsylvania that I was uh, running their mortgage operation, mm-hmm. um, kind of moved through the ladders from officer to AVP up to senior VP and helped them grow that uh, into a substantial half of, at the time, it was back in the eighties, a 500. Um, million dollar operation back then stayed there till about 1993 and decided to put a business plan together to start my own mortgage company. So I started with seven employees, uh, raised about a million in capital and grew gateway funding to a $3.2 billion mortgage operation at 800 employees Mm -hmm. clear across the country. I think the only States we weren't in were uh, Hawaii and Alaska. Mm-hmm. So, and it was during that time that I got on the leadership ladder for MBA. And the one thing I can tell your audience is that there was such a tremendous benefit from being involved with MBA. You know, I was a midsize independent mortgage banker competing against a lot of the larger institutions. And my involvement with MBA and the mentors and the connections mm-hmm. that I made during that time, I really give accolades to MBA that they were a large part of my success in building gateway funding. Mm -hmm. And then it's interesting um, when I was, I guess it was 2004, I was first nominated as vice chair um, or yeah, vice chair for MBA. And I began getting very involved on Capitol Hill, testified against predatory lending. If you remember back then, uh, the interest only option arms, Um, subprime loans. And I really saw the handwriting on the wall where I I felt the bubble was going to burst. And so I sold my interest in gateway funding in 2006. Some people say I had a crystal ball, uh, but it was a great decision. But I continued to stay involved in the industry that I've been very passionate about. Mm -hmm. And so began consulting for lenders, all across the country and really saw, and remember after the credit crisis and the 
the beginning of CFPB, there was such an increased regulatory scrutiny Mm -hmm. for our industry. And I really kind of honed in on that to try and help support lenders to manage their overall enterprise risk management. And what evolved over that over the next few years was understanding that all of the third-party vendors that lenders deal with pose risk to them. Mm -hmm. But as we talked about yesterday, specifically closing agent risk, Mm -hmm. because the lender doesn't control that. The borrower selects the closing agent, and some lenders could have thousands of closing agents that they need to monitor. Mm -hmm. And so I really honed in on that and felt that I, when I began Dietrix, um, felt that we could support lenders not only in managing the closing agent risk, but validating the wiring instructions. Mm -hmm. Because it was, I think it was back in 2000, the FBI um, formed the IC3 Internet Crime Division Mm -hmm. because they were starting to see a tremendous increase in business email compromises and wire fraud, Mm -hmm. which, and it's grown substantially. I mean, the pandemic and the increased volume has really Mm -hmm. uh, just exasperated that problem over the last 12 months. So that gives you a little short caption of, you know, how I got where I came from and where I am now. Yeah, no, that's that's fantastic. And it seems like that crystal ball is nice and polished now as we're moving to a purchase market where lenders are having to deal with more and more title agents that are selected by the borrower, by the realtor in many cases. And that lack of control, as you mentioned, um, is really different with settlement agents than it is with any other service provider. And to put a finer point on that, what does that pain look like? Like, what's the problem when lenders don't have this in order, especially now with with internet crime and wire fraud? Well, you know, it's twofold. One is they're spending a lot of time for every closing collecting the E&O and the wiring instructions. Um, And so when you layer onto that, the fact that closing agents, I would say 99.9% of them, except for those that are affiliates of the big title firms, uh, don't operate on a secure network. Mm-hmm. And what that causes is the, the increased cyber attacks that everyone is facing, not, mm-hmm. not just lenders, but I think, you know, you look at ransomware, wire fraud, business email compromises, the, the cyber criminals have gotten pretty sophisticated and they're, they're all over the world. They could be sitting on a laptop in Dubai and, and they've seen that our industry is a prime target, right? Mm-hmm. It's very easy for them to follow the transaction from point of sale yep. to settlement. So they hack into the closing agent's email address mm-hmm. and they follow that transaction. Whether it's 10 days, 30 days to closing, they know exactly when that loan is scheduled to close. Mm-hmm. Um, and what they do is they take over They're so sophisticated, they can take over the closing agent's email address and send a BEC business email compromise to the lender saying at the 11th hour, and a lot of times it happens before a holiday weekend, Right, could be Memorial Day, could be 4th of July, could be Labor Day, uh, Thanksgiving. Uh, It's always towards the end of the month too, right? When lenders are, you know, going crazy, trying to meet settlement deadlines, they send an email to the lender saying the wiring instructions have changed. 
And in, in a lot of cases, um, Jim, the lenders are not validating the wiring instructions. Mm -hmm. So they're not validating the identity of that individual. Are they the account owner, right. the ABA or the account number? And they're not checking to see if the domain of that email matches the closing agent. Mm -hmm. And all of that takes time. And, right. and I, you and I both know what happens at the end of the month mm -hmm. in, a, in a mortgage operation. Um, so, so what we've done is in addition to being able to validate the wire for them, we're collecting the E&O mm -hmm. and we're qualifying that closing agent to ensure that they haven't, they're not on the lender's exclusionary list, that they're licensed in the state where the loan is closing, that they meet their requirements for E&O, and then we're authenticating the wire validation. So, you know, when I first started Ditrix and we were doing this, like I said, I'm very passionate about this, mm -hmm. this issue of wire fraud and, and I've... I've tried to be a leader in the industry to get the message out on this. But what I've learned from our existing clients is that it creates such efficiencies for them. Mm -hmm. So to have on every single closing, think about a lender that's closing 10,000 transactions a month and they're collecting 10,000 E&Os right. for every loan that closes for that particular settlement agent. And then they're collecting the wire, um, wiring instructions, but they're not validating them. And, and it's not an insured transaction. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's cybersecurity insurance isn't going to cover them. The E&O isn't going to cover them. Right. If their employee or anyone in that lender's operation is the one that wires the funds, it's generally excluded from a cybersecurity mm -hmm. insurance policy. Well, and and so a lot of lenders think the E&O covers it and it doesn't. Right. Or even the CPL covers them. Completely. No, it doesn't. Mm -hmm. the, the CPL yeah. is only going to cover if the closing agent makes a mistake, right? Mm -hmm. One thing that I've, uh, I've seen um, with one of our title agent clients is they had an issue um, where they got an email, was suspicious, but then that person called and followed up and was believable enough on the phone that they will change the wiring instructions and were out $60,000. Yes, yes. And further, because it was not a cyber crime, because it was social engineering, it had right. to be a phone call, ENO did not cover it. You're um, right on the money there. Yeah. So those things, I mean, I, I do, it's not too sensational to say that a title agent is just one data breach away from being out of business in many cases. And yeah. it's to the point where hackers know that they're prime targets because they're relatively small companies, they handle other people's money. And they have to deal with a lot of different people. I know you yeah. mentioned um, emailing end of month or before a holiday weekend. I had even heard it might have been um, through your company on a call that if a hacker realizes someone has an out of office message up, that's another target because they know someone else is covering for that person yeah. and they're better able to get through. And yeah. they don't need too many of these 20,000, 30,000, 40,000 um, funds to hit for them to make a good living off of it. And once that yeah. money gets wired elsewhere, as you know, it's, it's gone. It's gone. And I, I think I mentioned to you mm -hmm. just in the last 90 days mm -hmm. that we've been able to thwart three different wire fraud attempts mm -hmm. that if we total them are over a million dollars. Right. So right. You, you look at what the average loan amount is, mm -hmm. you know, 300, 
three hundred and fifty thousand dollars. I mean, one of the one of the wires was six hundred thousand that we were able to stop. And, uh, you know, for some independent mortgage bankers, I mean, that's a that's a real hit. Yeah. Um, And it's 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 something that can be prevented. Uh, But what I've learned over the last year is that what we're doing for lenders is not just mitigating their risk, mm-hmm. but if, if, if I look at a lender that's doing 10,000 transactions a month, um, the numbers in cumulative benefits to them mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. in operational time, 25, it's average is about 25 minutes per loan. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. the call, the email, right. follow up with the closing agent because yeah. it's end mm-hmm. of month. And, and most of these closing agents, they wait until the day before their E&O is going to expire mm-hmm. before they pay their premium. So it may be multiple phone calls to a single agent just to get the E&O and the wiring instructions. Mm-hmm. So all that is saving the lender time. So on a, on a lender doing 10,000 transactions a month, it's probably close to a million four mm-hmm. in cumulative benefits to them. So it's almost like you can't afford not to do this mm-hmm. because it's going to, and how many, you, I'm sure you hear it all the time. Every lender is looking for where can I, can I right. cut costs, improve my productivity and create efficiencies within my organization? Absolutely. And that's not even getting into the negative effects of a large loss, um, both on your profit, the reputational risk of being associated with that. There's nothing more heartbreaking than seeing an article about a homeowner or prospective homeowner losing their life savings. Because right. while a mortgage banker could be insured, a title agent could be insured, the the person who's really on the hook ultimately can be that home buyer. Yeah. Well, and, and the other thing to think about is, particularly under this new administration, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we've seen increased hiring at the CFPB. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you, and you look at what their mission is, and their mission is all about protecting the consumer. Mm-hmm. So the regulators, their their first, the first thing that they care about is the consumer, not that the lender just lost three hundred fifty thousand because they wired it right. to the wrong account. Mm-hmm. But what happens is everybody shows up at that table. Right. The borrowers probably have either sold their property, or they've moved out of their house or apartment. Mm-hmm. They've got a moving truck waiting. They're all excited. Mm-hmm. Uh, and never gets to settlement and the money's not there. Mm-hmm. I mean, that that's eventually going to rear its ugly head with the CFPB. I believe yeah. it's only yeah. a matter of time. You and I know we've been in the industry long enough to know yeah. that right. uh, eventually because we don't self-regulate ourselves, mm-hmm. that eventually the regulators will do it for us. Mm-hmm. And so that's the message that I'm trying to get across to everybody in the industry, that mm-hmm. this is an important issue that we as an industry should really take seriously mm-hmm. and not wait until the hammer comes down from the OCC or the FDIC or the CFPB. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned self-regulating. So when you when you work with lenders um, as clients now, or when you were consulting, um, compliance is going to be a part of this industry. It's the largest transaction of a home buyer's life. There's no way that there's not going to be that type of scrutiny. Um, but how do you encourage lenders to look at compliance as not only 
<clears throat> a box to check, but a value add? Well, I mean, you, you just have to look at some of the fines mm -hmm. that some, some lenders have um, been given by the regulatory agencies. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a wake-up call, I believe. It really mm -hmm. is a wake-up call. And it's also an education. Uh, so I've spent a lot of time speaking at conferences, moderating panels, trying to educate our industry mm -hmm. on the importance of compliance. And I, to be honest with you, Jim, I mm -hmm. think they get that now. Yeah. They really do. But this issue of closing agents, that there's still a big segment of the industry that's going to say to me, well, we don't pick the closing agent. You know, it's not like a credit company. Right. And, and uh, so we're not really responsible. And I say to them, you know, when, when you look at high risk vendors, I call high risk vendors, someone that's mission critical, like a mm -hmm. subservicer or your hedge firm uh, or a credit company that you share MPI data with mm -hmm. all the borrowers, MPI um, and closing agents. Think about it. Mm -hmm. You're sending the cl closing package, which has the application, which includes all the borrowers, MPI, their income, their assets, and oh, by the way, we're going to wire $300,000 to a bank account that we haven't validated. So in that regard, that's still an education. I think our industry still needs an education on that. Mm -hmm. I think um, based on the regulatory environment that we've seen over the last decade, I think they understand, you know, RESPA. They understand HUMDA. They you know, they get that. They're mandated to do certain things, mm -hmm. right? They understand third party, managing their third parties. Mm -hmm. And I know that for a fact, because yeah. any, any potential client that I deal with, we go through a robust, and I'm sure you experience it too, mm -hmm. right? I mean, you could be four months trying to get your vendor approval with a lender. So they yeah. get it. They understand. They're just not doing anything for closing agents. And the reason they're not is they don't understand why they need to do it. Mm -hmm. And the other thing is, it's too many vendors yeah. for them to manage. You know, I mean, it, it's it's a daunting experience. So, mm -hmm. and and so that, you know, we take that off their hands and, right. and manage it for them. Mm -hmm. uh, and generally, they manage their other vendors on their own. Right. And we, we see that on our end, there may be a, a large lender could have a few AMCs, a few credit reporting companies, um, one servicer, and then 500 title agents. It's right, just, exactly, exactly. Think, mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it's important too, when you look at the transaction process, because the closing makes, is the last part of the process and arguably the most important, because if that doesn't go smoothly, the transaction doesn't happen. So right. looking at the sales pipeline that you have or a customer relationship that if you ever want that customer to refer someone, um, if you ever want them to come back for another transaction, if they had a bad process one way or another, yeah. um, that's not going to happen. And even though as the lender, you're not responsible, you're certainly going to be affected. And I think that's yeah. the way to look at it. I used to say to my operations people um, when I had my own company, the closing is your last chance to make a first impression. Mm -hmm. I mean, every, I mean, the whole process could go seamlessly, right? Yep. 
but the closing is, is that last, that's what they're going to remember, you know? Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and I believe I used to tell my loan officers, every closing is a sales opportunity, right? You've got the listing agent, you've got the selling agent, mm-hmm. you've got the seller a lot of times. Um, so it, it is, it, it, there's a lot of reputational risk in it for, mm-hmm. for the lender. When we're talking about compliance, um, we were saying how, you know, it's not until the government regulators come in that companies kind of fall in line. We're certainly seeing that now with the change at the CFPB, with what we're doing with our mortgage Sentinel brand. Um, people are now more concerned about fair lending and other items there. It seems like this industry is very reactionary um, in terms of, oh, this is a problem now, let me deal with it. Or right. this, this large company ran a Super Bowl ad and now we need to adopt this type of technology. So what's your advice to mortgage executives about, especially if they're not a main company, if they're a a mid-sized independent mortgage company, how do you kind of beat out all of the other folks in the industry? How do you approach regulations? How do you kind of balance everything? Yeah. And and that's a good question because it's tough. Mm -hmm. It's tough on multiple fronts for the smaller mid-size independent mortgage operations, Mm -hmm. you can't afford not to do it. Mm -hmm. Um, The same, I would say the same thing, not just for compliance, but I would say for technology. Mm -hmm. Uh, And and nothing against independent mortgage bankers. I know when when I was one, Mm -hmm. you know, I I kept investing in the company. So uh, my, my recommendation to a lot of those small, mid-sized independent companies. You know, last year was a great year. I think this year is going to be another great year. Mm-hmm. Um, they, these are the years where you take some of that off the table and reinvest it back into your organization, mm-hmm. not just in compliance because the fines are extraordinary. The reputational risk is extraordinary, but I would say investing in technology mm-hmm. because we're moving more to a digital, and you know as well as I do, mm-hmm. since COVID, we don't really know what the new norm is going to be, but I think you're going to have a, a lot of people that aren't going to the settlement table, right? That they're doing it virtually. They're mm-hmm. doing it e-closing. Um, you know, they're applying online through point of sale. Um, so the companies that aren't staying ahead of the curve mm-hmm. as it relates to that, and I'm not saying you have to be a rocket mortgage, okay? But but looking at point of sale mm-hmm. systems, really where, and the borrowers now are much more tech savvy than they were 10, 20 years ago, right? I mean, they, they want to do everything off of their mobile device um, and, and do it digitally. They want it faster, quicker, right. cheaper. And when you look at the cost of origination, you know, the cost to originate a loan, yeah. you know, you, you really need to, where can I reduce that cost? And that means improving efficiencies. And the only way you're going to do that is through technology. Mm-hmm. And I think it's important to use technology in a way to enhance that relationship part of the business too, yes. because as, as a millennial and seeing a lot of my friends buying homes and going through the process, um, they want that expert person to help them through the process. People know very, very little about all of 
all of the different aspects of this industry. Um, they right. don't know the fact that their mortgage is more than likely going to get sold to someone else. They know right. very little about any of this. Um, right. They want to apply online. They want to look online, but they need that person. So I right. think it's very important to utilize technology in a way that really lets your team enhance that part of the business. One you know, I, I, you bring up a good point mm-hmm. because someone not too long ago asked me a question about what did I think what the future of originators were? Mm-hmm. And, and I've been asked that question many times over the last two decades, you know, and just like when DU and LP came out, right. Mm-hmm. And, oh my God, we weren't going to need underwriters. Um, right. it, you know, I, I believe that the millennial, the first time home buyer, which is a large segment of the market right. needs a loan officer. You need a loan officer yeah. in that process but you need to provide the tools to the consumer and to the loan officer to be able to improve their productivity mm-hmm. and the experience for the customer, right? Mm-hmm. It's all about, I think, creating an exceptional customer experience. If you can do that, right? And without all the fits and starts and stops and you know the loan going back and forth from underwriting to processing mm-hmm. and you know back and trying to, we, we miss this, we miss that. You know, I think Fannie and Freddie have done a great job, mm-hmm. you know, with, with LP and DU um, and, uh, you know, the early watch and collateral underwriter. So there's more and more tools. And, you know, I, I think you're going to continue to see that being enhanced where, um, you know, you're going to be able to get a mortgage loan mm-hmm. um, like you go in and buy a car. I mean, that's the hope. I, I, yeah. I still think that it's going to take a while to get there. Yes, but I, think I do. It will be interesting to see how quickly or slowly we can get to that point. Um, yeah. Growing up in the title insurance industry and the mortgage industry is, is really no different. It very much can be boom or bust sometimes. I've seen my family's company go from 10 people to 90 people and everywhere in between. Um, and even now I have mortgage company clients who are adding t- five to 10 people a week. Um, do you think that it's still kind of, I wonder what's going to happen to these companies, these employees, if volume contracts, do you think people are still looking to kind of, I don't want to say throw bodies at a problem or, or kind of build a team opposed to looking at how they can actually leverage the people they have? Yeah. And, and boy, you just hit one of my hot buttons. Okay. When I, cause I, I can't help even when I'm, when I'm talking to our clients, about closing agent management, I can't help but give them my two cents on operations, okay? Because what I've seen a lot of companies do is they layer, they layer and layer and layer processes on top of others. Instead of stepping back and looking at the big picture and where can I streamline the operation? You know, they add something new into the process, but they don't re-engineer anything you know, on the front end or the back end of that one process. So we keep layering. Uh, and, and the other thing that I, that I always, you know, will, um, it's really my hot button and always was when I had my company was, you know, do you know what your productivity numbers are? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I knew what my cost per loan was, but I knew number of loans per processor, number of loans per underwriter, number of loans per closer, You know, you'd be amazed at when you start looking at those productivity numbers 
And I, okay, where's the drag? Where's the duplication? How many times is someone looking at that file? How you can improve productivity and set benchmarks and performance standards for your employees to where you're not just, if you're not efficient, that these, this is what, what I think of when I heard what you said. I'm just going to keep adding more bodies to right. it, right? I mean, I have no idea how many loans a processor in my organization on average can process or close in a month, how many loans an underwriter can underwrite. Um, and you can't run a business that way. You really can't. Those numbers are, are critical to the success of an organization and being able to operate efficiently and profitable. And I think when you look at kind of the work required to do that, it's certainly not sexy. And there's very often one, there's not a silver bullet that can get your processing time down. Um, but it's a lot of little, little things, a lot of lead bullets that can get there. For example, um, I've seen that an address is entered 70 to 80 times in the lifespan of a transaction. If we could get that down to 50, how much time is saved, how much error is saved. Um, yeah. And now even if it's minutes per file, like those things, that that's the type of stuff that people have to kind of think of when they look at this and Absolutely. kind of have that mindset of this yeah. is we're manufacturing alone. This is a process. Let's map out every step of it and see where that changes. And that's what we try right. to get across to folks yeah. all the time because they'll say, oh, we can do this manually. It's fine. Like this person manages it, but you don't really look at what the benefit is of that, of that type of automation. Yeah, I, t I totally agree with you. And, uh, there's a, there's a large segment of the industry that mm -hmm. is not doing loan level accounting. Mm -hmm. you know? I mean, so, you know, it's, it's really, um, I think it's critical to the success of any organization that you really start slicing mm -hmm. and dicing those benchmarks and performance standards mm -hmm. um, and, and setting goals. Um, because it's amazing what I used to see, because remember, you know, back, 2000 in the early 2000s i mean we were almost maybe i don't know if we were as busy as like the market mm -hmm. saw last year with the pandemic and low interest rates but it's amazing what people can do and the performance when when they have to mm -hmm. right so why can't we have that why can't we increase that level consistently right uh i also think cross training um, I was a big proponent of cross training because, you know, you, you go through, it's like, it's like the pig through the snake. Okay. And so when you're, when your volumes are high, you know, every, and everybody wants to close the end of the month, right? Okay. The closers are swamped. Okay. The post closers are sitting there waiting for the rest of this pig to come out of the snake. Okay. When I had my company, all the post closers were trained to close. Right. You know, uh, and and instead of hiring, now I'm going to have an army in closing and an army in post closing right. because right. this is coming down the pike. So, I mean, some of it is some of some of it to me was second nature. But I think that if I had any recommendations to lenders right now, because to answer your question, Jim. Um, you know, when we get back into a more normalized market, mm -hmm. you know, those companies that have hired, you know, I mean, they're going to be a lot of layoffs. Yeah. And yeah. It's, 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, you never, you never want. It always makes me nervous seeing that because I just feel like there's just bound to be another side of it too. And you, you had right. mentioned kind of when we back, get back to a, a normal market. So brushing off that crystal ball of yours that's been been so accurate so far. What do you see the next, you know, one to two years looking like in this market beyond new technologies coming in, the change to the purchase market? Like what other things? if you were one of those mid-sized independent mortgage bankers, would you really be keeping your eye on? Well, first of all, I would be honing in on my expenses and productivity, right? Mm-hmm. And all, and measuring everything that I said mm-hmm. um, and, and taking the, you know, the, the profitability that over the last, what's going to be two years mm-hmm. and this year uh, and really reinvesting it back into the company to be prepared. Um, you know, I, I'd look at, um, you know, setting up a call center for refinances mm-hmm. and really handling purchases separately. I think mm-hmm. the industry is going to continue to see strength in the purchase market, mm-hmm. but at some point you just drain that refi. I mean, you know, rates, how low can rates go? Mm-hmm. And, you know, people that are out there with a two and three quarter or 3% loan, mm-hmm. chances are when you get back to more of a normal market, um, that refinance activity is really going to substantially decrease. Even MBA said it's going to decrease this year. Mm-hmm. So preparing for that now, and there's a lot of companies out there that really didn't focus as heavily as they should have on the purchase market. Mm-hmm. So I think the purchase market when you look at millennials and you look at first-time home buyers, that's going to continue to grow. So you need to be focusing on that market um, and, and originators focusing on, you know, marketing to realtors and builders. And um, because some of them have just been order takers the last couple of years. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's easy to feed on that. We've all seen that happen. And, and all of a sudden the bottom drops out Mm-hmm. When that refi business goes away, mm-hmm. and so, and it, yeah. but what? So when do I think? I think a lot of it depends on the Fed, and and what they do, and the economy. So we've got a lot of you've got a lot of variables now in the market right. that right. we don't really know, and COVID makes it even more difficult, right? Mm-hmm. But between the stimulus, between unemployment. Um, the Fed continuing to keep the brakes on, you know, they say we're, we're not going to have inflation or at least they're going to, they're, they've even, you know, over the last 30 days been in the market buying. Um, but that's going to change at some point. Mm-hmm. I mean, as soon as the economy starts to recover, right. Um, you're going to see, I, I believe rates are going to start rising. I don't know that I can tell you when, but I could, I could say to your viewers that now's the time to start planning for that. Mm-hmm. And even right? to your point before about looking at your numbers and operations, um, the process of a refinance versus a purchase is substantially different. So how much is your loans per processor going to change, your desired loans per loan officer? All of those things can change when you go from 80% refinances to 30% refinances. Right. So I exactly. think the better that people's models can be for that type of thing, the more nimble they can be. And ultimately the 
fewer kind of ups and downs they can have of bringing on people, training people, firing people, like going through that whole process. Um, Because it's just, it's just so tough to do that. Well, that's your time when you start measuring those productivity Mm -hmm. numbers, when you do have to cut staff, you really want to keep the high producers. Mm -hmm. And when I say high producers, I don't just mean loan officers. I mean, those that, that in processing in underwriting and in closing, um, you know, it's an opportunity to build the cream of the crop within your organization Mm -hmm. and really set the bar a little bit higher. Um, and, uh, and to prepare for that now, um, and, and be ready for it. Mm-hmm. And then the added struggle of having to do a lot of that virtually. Too. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Right. And that's made it a lot tougher. Yeah. Um, you know, one, one point that does come to my mind that I also have seen our industry do, and that is eat each other up. And what I mean by that is when rates start to rise, okay, Mm -hmm. is when you start to see margins thin because Mm -hmm. everybody's trying to beat everybody else out, right? You've Mm -hmm. seen it. You know what I'm talking about. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think collectively as an industry, I'd like to see us not do that. (laughs) I'm not saying that that's going to happen, but but it traditionally happens. And so, you know, your margins are squeezed because you're trying to have the best rate than the guy down the street. Yep. And um, while your volumes are decreasing, it's, it's like a double whammy, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, one of, one of my favorite words is cooperation. And I think we see that all over this industry of it's cooperation and competition combined, right? You were talking about learning from other MBA members who sure they're your competition. There's thousands of mortgage companies who are your competition, but how do you, what can you learn from the other companies through MBA or other types of things like that? How do you view your quote unquote competitors in a way that can actually help your business? Right. The one thing I learned is that, you know, and I go back to when I had my own company, you know, some of my um, best mentors and uh, people that we shared data with in, in this market here in the, in the Pennsylvania area, New Jersey, Delaware, um, were my biggest competitors, but it, 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 you have to get to the point where um, you're not solo. I mean, sharing mm-hmm. ideas and best practices mm-hmm. with others in the industry. And, you know, I found that to be extremely helpful. Mm-hmm. I really did. Um, and you'd be surprised. I mean, it, it's funny that some of my biggest competitors, I mean, if one of their loan officers was looking to jump ship mm-hmm. and came and interviewed with us, I would call the CEO. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. not that I didn't want that originator, but that was the kind of camaraderie right. in this yeah. industry. Um, that mm-hmm. And your relationship that I, with that CEO was could be more important to you than that one employee. That's right. Exactly right. Exactly uh, right. That, I, that comes up all the time, um, regard, almost regardless of the topic we talk about, is the right thing to do and the thing that's good for your business can very often be the same thing. 
And I think that's true for compliance. That's true for technology. That's true for how you can be a steward of the industry. Um, and I think that's very much true with diversity and inclusion. And I know you have been more focused on that um, throughout your career, but especially recently with um, a book you co-authored. Um, so would love to kind of segue into being a good steward in the industry to how else can this industry support and should be looking at um, you know bringing each other up. Well, thank you for asking me that question because I am very passionate. I think women play a big role in our industry and, and I've seen some rising stars uh, over the last 20, 25 years. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I was proud to be the first woman chairman of MBA, mm -hmm. but we've now had the third chair woman. Uh, Deb Still was second and um, Susan Stewart Mm -hmm. chairman this year. Um, so I'm, I'm proud to see that our industry is really accepting that and helping lenders to understand diversification within their organizations is critical, mm -hmm. particularly mm -hmm. when you look at, and I'm not just saying women, but when you look at the segment of the market, Hispanics and Asians, mm -hmm. um, and you, know, you look at some of the board of directors of some of the major major lenders in this country that really either have no women or one woman on their board. Um, and uh, do they have Asian representation? Do they have African-American, um, Hispanic? Um, so I think there's such, just such a huge need for us mm -hmm. to diversify because we're serving a different market. You know, you've got women that are, that years ago, you know, very few single women would have purchased a home. Today, that's mm -hmm. not the case. Um, and so I think our businesses need to look more like our customers look. Mm -hmm. And uh, so one of the things I wanted to share with you is there were a group of women, other leaders in the industry that we got together last summer. People say, what did you do during the pandemic? I, mm -hmm. said I wrote a chapter for a book. And I was really proud to be part of this whole group of women. And uh, it became a, a bestseller on Amazon in, um, in November of last <laughs> year. And it was titled Win or Lose. And Lose was crossed out. And it said, Win or Learn, The Naked Truth. <laughs> and it was our stories. We each wrote a chapter of, of our career uh, and, and how we got to where we are today. And it was a really great experience to get together with a group of other um, women industry leaders in, uh, in the mortgage banking field to really see how, men, how women have really, I think, helped to break the glass ceiling. Um, so I wanted to share that with you, but you know, I'll continue to, um, to support women and mentor them. And, um, you know, I'm proud to do it. Mm -hmm. No, we'll make sure we, um, we link to the book as well when we, when we put this out so we can, uh, thank direct you. People towards thank it. you and very much. This is usually where I ask someone what, uh, what gets them out of bed in the morning, but I feel like you've answered that partially with every single question that we've, we've talked about, but, um, going off of your last topic, um, what advice would you give to young women entering the industry right now? especially in 2020, 2021? So I, I would say um, it's a couple things. Mm -hmm. One is to believe in yourself. 
right? I, I think a lot of women don't there. When, when people talk to me about, you know, what is it about the glass ceiling? And I say, I believe that women create their own glass ceiling mm-hmm. because they don't believe in themselves. They don't set their goals high, mm-hmm. right? And, and, and so they underestimate themselves. So you've got to believe in yourself first, right? Mm-hmm. And, and there's nothing, I've always told my daughter, there's nothing that you can't do that you don't put your mind to. I mean, if you put your mind to it and you're, you're driven, mm-hmm. you're passionate about it, um, you're willing to make mistakes because we learn from our mistakes uh, and be driven. And uh, so, and then in addition to that, I think networking you know, having mentors, which I did, I was fortunate enough, and it doesn't have to be another woman to mentor you. Mm-hmm. My, my mentor was the chairman of Bank of America Mortgage, Andy Woodward, mm-hmm. um, who, was, who was chair of the nominating committee when I was nominated um, to go on the ladder for MBA. And I remember sitting with Andy at an airport in San Diego years ago, and we were sharing stories of our career. And here he's chairman of Bank of America Mortgage, right? And I'm mm-hmm. thinking, I can't even believe I'm sitting here talking to him, right? And at the end of the conversation, he asked about my career. And after I listened about his career and all the banks that he brought public and mm-hmm. traveled around the world, he said to me, you know, I envy you. I'm like, oh my God, he envies me. And he said, well, you know, I never started anything from ground zero mm-hmm. and built it. So it's amazing the people, if you, if you really reach out, yeah. the, the people out there that want to support you, that want to help you grow right. and uh, could end up being your greatest mentor. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be a woman. And just goes to show too, no one has all the answers, right? This is someone that you thought was an absolute titan of the industry. And he said, this is something I've never done. That right. You have. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So, yeah. um, so never underestimate yourself. Mm-hmm really believe in yourself mm-hmm. and not be afraid to make mistakes. Yeah. Well, that's fantastic. I um, was in a, a conference the other day and someone gave the pointer of your mentor doesn't need to know that you're, you're there, your mentor. Like it doesn't necessarily have to be like, Hey, will you be my mentor? It's yeah, no. about this question. What about this? Hey, I was wondering you about know, this. Jim, that's so you, yeah. you're so right. Because yeah. I think back to, when I first got on the board of directors Mm -hmm. of MBA, and this was before there was ResBog and Combog and the board of directors. Mm -hmm. I mean, MBA's board of directors was like 50 people. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and I was one of the first women ever to Mm -hmm. to be nominated um, to sit on the board. And that's intimidating. It really was intimidating. I think back then, you know, the likes of Angelo Mazzillo and Andy Woodward and Joe Pickett from Homeside, mm-hmm. I could go down the whole list. Mm-hmm. And I had, to, I had to pinch myself and say, how the hell did I end up here, right. right? But what I learned early on after I got through the first couple of meetings, that these were all big, big companies, right? Mm-hmm. And here I was, I was president of Gateway and we were just a small mid-sized independent mortgage banker. And what I realized was that I had a voice on issues that they needed to understand Mm -hmm. and understand because a large segment of their membership 
was just like me, Mm -hmm. right? And so I realized I had a voice and something important to say Mm -hmm. that would impact the entire industry. So yeah, you, you just never know. You really never know. And, and a lot of those people didn't know they were mentors, you know, um, you know, I mentioned Andy's name in the book in the chapter that I wrote, but um, it just happens. It really just yeah. happens. Well, that's, I mean, such great advice for people. And, you know, thank you so much. You've been so generous of your time. Um, just to wrap up, is there anywhere people can find you if they want to learn more about Dietrix or anything else you want to plug? Yes. Um, um, my email address is rlowry, like my name, L-O-W-R-I-E at dietrix.com. And uh, love to talk to anybody uh, on how we can help them manage closing agents and validate their wires. Yeah, great. As we mentioned, huge problem. I mean, you guys are doing a great job uh, solving it for companies. So thanks so much for your time, Regina. Regina, this has been an absolute blast. Thanks, Jim. Thank you for the honor. Take care. Of course. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Lodestar's Lending Leaders. Please like and subscribe wherever you get this podcast. If you have any ideas for upcoming episodes or would like to be a guest, please reach out to us at lendingleaders at lssoftwaresolutions.com. Hope to hear from you.